0: This morning's reading is from Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time... He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd so they left him and went away. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Morning, everyone. Nice to see you. My name is Pete. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, we, we, we were studying Mark together before Easter on the road to the cross and the empty tomb. So uh, we're back again and we get to carry on and listen to Jesus in the days running up to his crucifixion. You may have noticed that on the back of your service sheets, there are some intriguing circles I'll explain in due course. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to church this morning to the Bible with all sorts of things weighing on our minds, small and big. And I pray for each of us. We, we come to you uh, empty-handed, Father, needing a blessing, needing this, this word from the eternal God to have something for us this morning. So we pray that in your great kindness, through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, you might do that. Amen. What right does Jesus have to tell me what to do? I grew up out in the countryside near Blenheim Palace. Now, if you know Blenheim Palace... You may know it's one of England's finest stately homes. It's absolutely enormous. It's cavernous and the grounds are, you know they just stretch for miles and miles around the countryside. I grew up rather taking this for granted that this was on our doorstep. One day, my mum went for a jog and with her friend. They were doing some running at the time. So they went for a jog in the grounds of Blenheim Palace. And just as they were approaching a fence in the grounds, there was a guy on a horse coming just along the fence. And uh, joggers and man on horseback stop either side of the fence and there's a slightly awkward moment which the man breaks into the silence by saying it's alright, you may cross the stile. And the awkward silence continues after this at which point he sort of trots off on his way and um, feeling a bit awkward and nonplussed my mum and her friend indeed cross the stile and carry on their jog. About 50 yards further into their field they, they think Duke of Marlborough. That's who that was. The Duke of, you know, that's why he had the blazer on. That's why he talked that way. That's why he felt he had the right to tell us that we could cross the style. Oh, you're the landowner. Oh, okay. I mean, you're ridiculously old fashioned and hilarious, but you are, you are the landowner. You own Blenheim Palace. In Mark 11 and 12, we're in a discussion about the landowner, a discussion about rights and authority. Just look with me, if you would, chapter 11, verse 33, just the verse before our passage. The religious leaders answered Jesus, uh, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority, what right I'm doing these things. You see, so we're in in a discussion about rights. In particular, they've got to be in their bonnet because Jesus just strode into the temple. He's flipped over all the tables. He's banned people people from selling stuff in there. He's cut off the temple worship at the stump. And as we saw just before Easter, he's planting new seeds about faith and forgiveness in that stump. So they're saying, "What, what possible right have you got to do this, to be here, to say these things? This is, of course, just as we observe at the beginning, uh, a big picture question, isn't it? What what right has Jesus got to say anything, to do stuff in people's lives? For our lives today, I mean, it it is a big picture question in a similar way, isn't it? What gives you the right, Jesus, God, to uh, govern my life choices, to hold sway over what career I choose, where I live, uh, where I work? who I might marry or who I might avoid all of these big picture sort of questions what on earth gives you the right As someone put it to me recently um, they said I've been running from God for years and years and years in one particular big area of life it just it was like I'd ring fenced it off and I was keeping God out and saying you've got no right to this because I'm pretty sure I know the way that this area of life is supposed to operate and they said that the breakthrough actually came after years and years and years when they eventually conceded Oh, you are, in fact, God. You you do have the right to comment, tell me, say these things. These are challenging questions we're facing in these chapters. Um, I rather like the sermon slide because it's kind of conceptual. We're going to see lots of conceptual ideas in chapters um, 11 and 12, and then he's still in the temple in chapter 13, so that sort of operates as a block. And it does feel a bit like this, ideas on a blackboard. But for this morning... It's not really conceptual, it's visual. Jesus tells a a story, and as I hope we'll see, it's incredibly vivid and evocative, and it's supposed to sort of stir us up and make us feel. It's actually a a story within a story, which apparently is a literary device. I've been learning about literary devices. If you you know the story, you know it's sort of a, a mini story that Jesus tells to illustrate the bigger story of Mark's gospel. And Shakespeare was very fond of doing this after mark shakespeare used it at least three times Um, perhaps most famously in hamlet he has a a play within a play where um, hamlet the main character suspects that his father the king has been killed by someone who was up to no good but he needs some proof so if you know the story he um, stages a little play and he invites some traveling players to come in and he has the the king who he suspects to be the usurper the wicked king he invites him to sit in the audience and then he stages this play, and the play retells the bigger story, and uh, he's watching. Watching. And um, Sarah and I went to see Hamlet last summer, just for a little bit of high culture, and um, Hamlet comes down into the audience. Now, at the risk of being a, a Rwandan apostle, let me just stride out here. Okay. <laughs> so Hamlet comes into the audience, and he sits here in the, in the play, but about to watch the mini-play, and he says this famous line, the play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. The play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. And all the time there's mini plays going on, in the play of Hamlet, he's watching the king out of the corner of his eye, seeing if he can catch his conscience, seeing if the king's emotional reaction will betray what's actually going on. And it may just catch our conscience too. Okay, uh, two things to notice in the story two problems with the tenants. First of all, there's no rent. And second of all, there's no respect for the son. Okay? No rent and no respect. So firstly, we'll see, there's no rent for the owner. First one, when Jesus begins to speak to them in parables, he says, a man planted a vineyard. So we're invited to imagine this entrepreneur. This guy, he sees a desolate wasteland, and he doesn't think hopeless, he thinks... Potential, and uh, he sets about clearing it of the weeds and the stones. You know, he he clears it all. He tills it. He sweats over this land. He plants young vines in the ground and he trains them tenderly up the stakes to form a vineyard. He pours all sorts of blood, sweat, and tears into this piece of land. And then, as he stands back and dusts off his hand, it's finished. It's planted. He looks at the baking hot Mediterranean sun, and he looks at the fertile soil looks at the irrigation system that he set up. And he thinks, yes, the harvest will come. This is going to work. So we're invited to step into this vineyard and imagine it. And Jesus says, look, life circumstances take this guy elsewhere. Another opportunity or, or life or something. And he has to move on. So he arranges a contract, finds some tenants. And off he goes to another place. Now, apparently... Probably takes four years for a young vineyard when you've planted it in the ground to sort of be mature and produce a proper harvest. So we're talking about about four years, time elapses, and he sends a servant from the far-off place to collect some harvest crop. Apparently we're also to understand that rent was paid as a percentage of the produce, so you're not you're not about to hand over some denarii, you know, some actual physical cash. You're gonna give, let's say, 10% of your harvest this year to the landover as the rent. So the servant comes to collect the rent. And they say, clear off. We don't want you here. We've been here for four years. Who are you? Who is this landowner anyway who we've never even seen with our own eyes? Go away. There's shouting. It actually gets a bit rough and someone ends up throwing a punch. They uh, shove the servant out of the gate of the vineyard and the bolt slides into place behind him. Clear off. The servant has to make his way back to the master, and some weeks later, a second servant turns up. This time, the tenants are emboldened, and they've set up a, you know, like a tenants' union, local residents' association. In the meantime, and they're ready for a fight, and um, they're not even polite to this guy. I thought we told your friend to clear off. Go on. And there's a scuffle straight away, and the guy receives some lumps on the head, and they kick him out of the vineyard, and the bolt slides into place behind him third servant turns up weeks later this one is obviously determined to be firm because he knows how his colleagues have fared but the tenants are angry by this point and there's some hot-tempered kicking and there's some uh, punching as the guy goes down on the floor and after a couple of minutes of altercation with this servant one of the tenants shouts stop stop he's dead killed him weeks and months passed. on and on this goes, the tenants are getting away with 100% of the produce. Everything they're producing, they're keeping. And they seem to be getting away with it. Okay, let's just pause the parable there. Recently I met a, a, a real-life 21st century landlord. Um, he was out in the countryside, the market town where I grew up. And um, Uh, this guy was a dyslexic boy in our market town when he was born um, 50 years ago and he's sort of a self-made man he bought his first property in the town and then he managed to scrape together enough money to buy a second property and then a third he wouldn't actually tell me how many properties he owned It seemed to be well into the double figures and his full-time living where he's reasonably well off is just to manage all his property so he's a landowner he said to me uh, you know what I find that with my tenants, one in five of them are bad. One in five. It surprised me a little bit. You know, He he said basically they just don't pay the rent. And and obviously that's the worst thing for a landlord. Interestingly, uh, let me just share this with you. He said, um, I really like the Eastern European tenants. Uh, He said, some people think they've got a bad reputation. I think they've got a great reputation because they work hard and they pay the rent on time. Uh, he said, you know who I think are the worst tenants? It's the middle-class British people, the Westerners, who have this like fixed lifestyle in their head that they have to hold on to. They want the corner sofa and the flat-screen TV and the new car every couple of years and uh, the phone contract, whatever, happens, and it gets to the end of the month, and oh, there's no money for the rent. Sorry, landlord. You can imagine how that point of view goes down in Oxfordshire, out in the market towns. But it struck me, you know... Nice tenants who don't pay rent aren't nice tenants. Nice tenants who don't pay rent are not nice tenants because they don't know what they're supposed to do. Sometimes people say in a religious context, look, I'm a nice person. I'm not as bad as some people. God will let me into heaven, won't it, when it comes to the great day of judgment. But it's striking here in our passage that Nice tenants who don't pay rent are not nice tenants. Which might just beg the question, well, what do you mean by pay rent? What what are the terms of engagement here? What is God looking for? If you dig back into the Bible where Jesus actually gets his idea from here, you can see it quite clearly, Isaiah chapter 5. That's where the whole vineyard thing really, really kicks off and some of the details are exactly the same so we know where Jesus got the idea from and developed it. Back in Isaiah, chapters 1 to 5, God is looking for from his people the sort of rent that he's after. Uh, he doesn't want empty religion or corrupt leadership or disregard for the poor or chasing after superstition and idolatry and other religion or pride. He doesn't want any of those things. Well, the, the sort of rent that he's after is a moral uprightness that's in line with the Old Testament law. Of course, in the Old Testament, most famously, you get the Old Testament law, condensed, summarized, enshrined in the Ten Commandments. Two tablets that Moses held, which was the densest summary of that law. They begin with talking about how you treat God, and they move on to talking about how you treat other people. Commandment number one, have no other gods before me. God is interested, rent-wise, whether I've put anything before him in my life. Second half of the commandments, have you treated other people? God is interested rent-wise in that on the day of collection. Have you coveted anything? Adultery, murder, lying, all these sorts of things. Do you see what that means? Just in terms of our rent illustration, you could be a happy, shiny, successful tenant farmer, successful person on planet Earth. You could have a happy, shiny family or a very successful professional career. You could have a lot of acumen But nice tenants who don't pay rent are not nice tenants. Okay, that's our first point. No rent for the owner. Let's consider the second, shall we? Because things escalate here. No respect for the owner's son. Have a look at verse 6. He had one Left to send a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. So we're back in the vineyard, okay? Can you picture it in your mind's eye? And there's another figure approaching on the dirt road leading up to the, the wall and, and the gate of the vineyard. And uh, the lookout in the tower spots him, hollers, hollers down to his friends in the vineyard. Ah, oh, someone's coming. Maybe it's another servant. And as the guy gets closer in the distance, they see uh, he carries himself a bit differently to the others. Seems to be wearing a full-length robe of some sort. Closer and closer, you can begin to see the sunlight catching the expensive ring on the finger. I think it's the sun. I think it's the sun. And there's a bit of scuffling and excitement down below, and they form a huddle, and and there's whispers and murmurs, and they hatch a plan. If this is the sun, if we can dispose of this one like we did with the last servants, then when the old man dies, we're going to get the occupancy rights here. I mean, this is going to put an end to it, and we'll win. The long running battle. So the servant approach, the the son approaches the gate and whisper dies down and knocks on the gate. The bolt slides back. The gate swings open and they couldn't be nicer. Ah, oh, oh, you're the owner's son. Welcome. Come in, come in, come in. And of course the arm slides around his shoulders, which is really a ploy to keep him in place while the dagger slides in the other side underneath the rib cage. And again and again and then the ambush really happens from behind the closed gate and there's punching and kicking and the guy falls to the floor. And within just a couple of minutes of the son stepping through the gate of his father's vineyard, they're throwing out a corpse into the gutter outside. They had no respect for the owner's son. I, my father was a, an airline pilot for his whole career. He flew for British Airways for 30 years. And one of the inestimable benefits of that is that when you're a kid, you get free flights everywhere. Uh, and sometimes Dad would sort of take me along. I'd, I'd tag along on a long-haul trip somewhere exotic. And in the cockpit of the 747s he used to fly, there was a flip-down jump seat, they called it, where, you know, if you're 12, you can you can fit in there and you don't have to pay a penny and you get to be there in the cockpit with your dad while he's flying a jumbo jet, which is really cool. It's as cool as it sounds. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Sometimes airline passengers... uh, Airline passengers sometimes have a reputation for bad behavior, don't you? So, So drunkenness on a plane... That sort of scenario, your airline passengers who are off for a good time, a holiday, and they arrive at the airport slightly merry, they continue drinking through the departure lounge, and by the time they're boarding the plane, they're ordering more drinks from the air stewards and stewardesses, and things aren't going to get better over the course of a long flight. Imagine that scenario, okay. Um, They are significantly worse for wear, and already, before the plane has even taken off, the warnings are coming. I think you've had enough. I think you need to consider the other passengers. That's enough. And, of course, you can imagine the scenario. They're sending one steward after another back up the aisle with an increasing amount of bad language and disrespect. Clear off. Give us more drinks. Now, I should hasten to add, this never happened to me, okay? But imagine, imagine, this situation escalates. The plane has just taken off. And um, the captain, my dad, turns to me over his shoulder and says, look, can you go and talk to them?" they you like, sent all the stewards back? Someone from the cockpit needs to go and talk to them. We're kind of busy. Could you go and talk to them? And so from the cockpit um, would emerge the captain's son. And walking down the aisle of the aeroplane towards the mob, and as much as a 12-year-old could muster, he would have to say, I've come from the captain, and, and I've got to tell you, that's enough. You've got to stop. Now imagine a, a glass bottle coming down on the head of the sun. You're not going to take anything else from, the, from a 12 year old boy, a little son, whoever you are. And the sun drops to the floor with the impact, dead. With what mixture of professional and personal feeling would the captain land the plane immediately? Would, would he return to the airport they'd just come from? Would he have the, those unruly passengers kicked off the plane? Would he have charges pressed against them? Would he have all sorts of inner anguish within him? With what mixture would he do that? But is that not what he would do? There's a chilling moment here, actually, in the Bible, when we're, of course, in Mark chapter 12. Jesus doesn't get crucified till Mark chapter 15, three chapters later, But you see what's going on here? Jesus is telling a parable. He's looking his murderers in the eye and he's saying, I know what you're going to do to me because I'm telling you a story about a son who came to earth and they didn't respect him, so they killed him. This is, of course, what Mark's gospel ultimately comes down to. The, the, The owner's son came and they didn't respect him. In fact, they killed him. Do you respect him? By which I mean, and the Bible would help us fill out that, that, that sentence with other words, other language. Do you trust him? Do you believe in him as the, the only way? Do you obey and worship him? Because to use our phrase again, nice tenants who don't respect the son are not nice tenants. That's our story. And then do you see Jesus does something quite unusual in verse 9? He asks a question. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? That's quite unusual in the Bible for us to be actually invited. Put yourself in God's shoes. What would you do if you were the owner of the vineyard? If you were God and you had the situation on planet Earth, what would you do? Jesus is actually inviting that response. Helpful here, I think, to um, think about it in terms of three Circles. Here we go. Okay. Um, The the narrower circle is the temple. The next one out is Israel, and the next one out is the world. Let me just try and explain as as we figure out okay, uh, how does God have the right to deal with these different groups of people? Narrower circle, the temple, by which I mean the temple staff, the uh, elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the Lord, the ones who Jesus is particularly speaking to. We know that from verse 12. Um, In this particular way, do you see how the stories for them? See how in our Hamlet example, Jesus is watching them out of the corner of his eye. He wants to see their emotional reaction. He, he's contrived and told this story for them. So that's the narrower circle of people around Jesus that he's interested in. He might have said, uh, the parable's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the chief priest. Uh, and they miss here the best opportunity I think they would ever have for a way out. Because in a couple of days, they would be implicated in a murder plot. They would be pushing all the buttons, arranging all the machinations for Jesus to be killed and strung up on a cross. And this is their opportunity to say, Phew, you've got it. I'm so sorry. Uh, you are the owner's son. I think of it a bit like disciplining, disciplining a child, if you ever have to do that. Um, you know, If you if you try and discipline a child, which is a particularly hard thing to do, you, you, you might say, stop hitting your brother. And uh, usually I find that they don't. Um, and you, you say, stop hitting your brother. And usually I find that they don't. And the, the final step might be, stop hitting your brother or you're going to be punished. You, there's going to be a timeout or something. Okay? Uh, and usually I find that they don't stop. And nine times out of ten, in comes the punch or the slap or the hit. Um, stop hitting your brother. But there is, of course, an opportunity. There's, there's a way out just before the red mist descends. And it's game over and punishment commences There was an opportunity for a way out there. I think for these people, for the narrower circle of the temple staff, there was a way out a few moments before they killed Jesus where they could have gone back. And they didn't take it. Temple staff. Uh, Next circle out, the middle circle, Israel. As I said, this story first popped up in Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus develops it, but it is really designed to tell the story of Israel, Israel's history. As a Bible geek, this really excited me when I realized this week that Jesus gives a Bible overview in a parable, just if you're interested. I don't think this happens anywhere else in the Bible. God himself gives a small story that reflects the entire span of the Bible, it starts off planting a vineyard, very Genesis-like. He initiates a country, he uh, rents it to tenants, he gives it to a nation, Israel, he sends prophets uh, as servants to warn them again and again and again. But it doesn't stop with the Old Testament because then you get to the New Testament and the sun comes. They don't respect the sun, so they kill him. You see how it's spanning the entire Bible? Incredible. My eyes were lighting up. Does it stop there with the crucifixion on Good Friday? No, because of verse 10. Do you see verse 10? Where am I? Chapter 12, verse 10. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes see, without actually using the word resurrection, Jesus is talking about the resurrection. There's going to be some way that even though the son was killed and it looked like a bad ending, God, the Lord, was going to turn this around and make the rejected stone the chief stone, the cornerstone. He was going to make the overlooked one the overall one. This really is the entire Bible in a story. Okay, second circle. That's for Israel. They were supposed to understand that. Bigger circle is the whole world. The world. Because the whole world is supposed to listen to this story as God comes to earth and tells the story. It's supposed to encompass everybody. And we're supposed to acknowledge that Jesus has the right to tell the whole world what to do. You may be a nice person. But nice tenants who don't pay rent and who don't honour the sun aren't nice tenants and sometimes that we're, we're angry with god or we're angry with life or we're angry with religion and we might think we've got a particularly good reason for it but could it be could it be that there is a way out just before the red mist comes down god is graciously giving warnings and warnings and warnings and he is offering a way out for the whole world before it's too late there is a reason Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else. It's because he loves people and doesn't want anyone to go there. So I wonder this morning will you give Jesus the right to tell you what to do? Will you? Maybe, it, maybe that's the sort of big picture question for you this morning. You know, you, you're thinking in terms of the whole vineyard is a ring fenced area. Or, that's my whole life. And I have never been willing to let Jesus in, let God in and tell him what, tell me what to do. Do you see how God is saying to you this morning through this story of Jesus Christ has got to change today? It's a big relief to do the right thing, I think, eventually. You could pray a prayer this morning, if the, if the whole vineyard is your frame of reference here. It, it might be something, it might be that you've handed over the whole vineyard to God some time ago, but the current harvest is very attractive. There's something at the moment in the vineyard which is very tempting to hold on to. It's something that you don't want to give up to God when he might come asking for it. Really looking forward to enjoying this thing, God, this fruit, this thing that I've grown and nurtured. And who are you to take it away from me? This year's harvest I want to keep for myself, whether it's a relationship, whether it's money, whether it's pleasure, whether it's a house or a promotion, or whatever it might be. This harvest that I've slaved over, I want I need to tell you today, you're not behaving like a tenant. You're behaving like an owner. And God is offering you a, a way out, a chance to repent, to be a tenant again. Will you give Jesus the right to tell you what to do in that area? Well, finally, I just want to say to some of you, uh, it may be that we're not talking whole vineyard. We're not even talking current harvest. We're talking about a, a Poor harvest. We're talking, if you want to talk, put it in harvest terms, we're, we're saying that the last few months, weeks have been so difficult through a time of drought. It feels like a, the only water I've had for my crops have been my own tears. And all I could offer God were he to want anything would be a few little scorched grains. That's all I've got. I'm willing to give it to you. You're the landlord, but that's all I've got. I've got a poor harvest. For you, I just want you to hear this parable differently, okay? Jesus sometimes comes and talks to people like a lion. So he'll come and talk to the religious leaders like a lion, and he'll be in their faith, and he'll be challenging them and saying, what are you going to do when the owner's son comes? And he'll come to other people, and he'll be the lamb. And if this is you this morning with a poor harvest, I want you just to see verse 9. See what he says. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, and he'll kill, kill those tenants... And he'll give the vineyard to others. Because Jesus, the owner's son, he knows that there are some who have held on. Some who have been through bad weather. Some who have barely got anything to offer to God. But they honor the son. They trust the son. And to them, I take it that the great reversal in verse 10 is very precious, isn't it? Because when the son comes to collect the rent he doesn't mind if they've got a few scorched scraps in their hands they know he's the owner of the vineyard the son and he says this is marvellous isn't it they thought they killed me but the one they rejected has become the cornerstone this is marvellous in our eyes and I'm wiping away every sadness that you've had and that." It's the note on which the Bible ends and on which the play within the play ends. Let's pray. Almighty God, the owner of the vineyard, we pray to you this morning. In whichever situation we're in, if we need to just acknowledge you're the owner of the vineyard, then help us do that this morning. If we need to give you our current harvest, Whatever we're clinging on to, then help us do that. Give us grace for that because we find it so hard. And if we're enduring a poor harvest, then we take such comfort from knowing the sun will return. And that is marvelous in our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.